Hey everyone, it's Mike Bonomo from Fight the Fate. I want to take this time to thank everyone for supporting the show, and if everyone could just take a couple minutes to rate and review us, it will go a long way in helping us get recognized. People start to know our names, and we can take over the world. And you will be a big part of it. Thanks, guys. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, I'm Mike Bonomo. Welcome back to Fight the Fate. And today we are talking about Winston Churchill again. Part 3. Last week we went to the Western Front. And this week we're on the political front. Dude, uh, like <laughs> I didn't know any of this that I was researching. Like I go from my knowledge goes from World War One to World War Two. Yeah, a lot of people like to gloss over this part because it's a little more complicated. Dude, it was <laughs> like I, my head was about to explode. I kept like, and I can't like just summarize over these things that Churchill was standing for, and the way he like went into political weakness and stuff. Because then it would, like, it's just like a, another layer of what I thought about Churchill. Like, I, I learned so much about him. Yeah. I didn't know what he was doing. I just thought he, like, they gave him the position. He got up there. He said, we'll never surrender. Yeah, you can And that was it. A lot of historians do a disservice because, like, uh, it's called historical orthodoxy, and it's kind of like mythologizing history, like great man history. And they really do a disservice to Churchill because he had so many, like, nuanced opinions, and he dealt with a lot of big issues that were very complicated. And a lot of stuff where, like, he couldn't say what he meant because of his political stance, where he would be ruined yeah. if he really spoke what he was talking Like, if he really said what he was talking about, what he felt, it would have drove him back down to a position where he couldn't do anything about it. And he was very shrewd. Like, he would make alliances with people he needed in the moment. Because he switched political parties, which... I know. A couple of times. Conservative... <laughs> Uh, so like he was start off, he was like calling for nationalizing the railways. He was tax reform, the creation of the League of Nations. Churchill seemed to care about world peace and the chance to never waste lives on a mass scale again. And a lot of people just think the League of Nations didn't do shit and they were terrible. And they never got anything accomplished because they kind of dropped the ball the next decade. <laughs> yeah, they dropped the ball. But the League of Nations did a really cool thing. They actually made a passport for people that were stateless because the, um, the Russian Empire collapsed. So, like, Finnish people didn't have a nation. And oh. other countries like that that split off. Like, Ukraine just became its own thing after the war. Yeah. So all these people from the Russian Empire mainly, but there was other countries too, they didn't have a way to go around because they didn't have a passport because they didn't have a country and they didn't have a sovereign to pr protect their rights. So the League of Nations made millions of these uh, yeah. passports for people. Well, the League of Nations, this consisted of France, the United Kingdom, Italy, 
and Japan. They were like the permanent, the executive council. And they did, they like you were saying, they did some good, some bad. But their biggest failure was their promotion of weakness because one man was watching their every move <laughs> and he had a tiny mustache. You know who I'm talking about. After winning the new election, Prime Minister Lloyd George decided to move Churchill to Secretary of State of War, the Secretary of State for Air, and they wanted to demobilize the British Army. That was the first task. But when Winston employed the Prime Minister to keep at least a million men around just in case... That's a big expense for any country. And yeah. Churchill actually advocated for the Air Force when he became the air minister because he knew it was cheaper to actually just fly bombers over. And that actually came into World War II, too. But he was, like, one of the first politicians in the world to focus on air power, mostly. But, like, I don't think they didn't want to, they didn't want to arm the, uh, I don't know, what did they want them to do? Just sit there? Like, how are they, how, how do you get the money to just have the army ready but like not use them well a lot of countries at this time before world war one germany and france would have huge conscription networks and it kind of uh, they weren't the best trained but they could quickly get a lot of men in certain areas and that's because they're so close to each other but england didn't really care about a land army because they're on an island so they'd focus on the navy a ton which in the end is probably more expensive yeah but it's that fuel dude it's you better got, for them and it increases fuel, their commerce who's gonna fuel <laughs> these ships yeah like it's like a, a a party boat like you're not leaving without more than like 20 people because we don't have gas to yeah. get out there <laughs> and if you have a navy this time you need a lot of like depots for supplies so you need to take over a bunch of little islands so that's why like Brittany and, and the united states and even france to a lesser extent have all these little islands all over these little seas so yeah. uh, it takes a lot of infrastructure, but Winston kind of knew that they had to have some sort of land army if they were going to be involved in the continental politics again, like World War I. Uh, before that, Britain didn't really deploy large amounts of troops. They also wanted the demobilization of Germany's, ar Germany's army, but they wanted to keep them ready too because of the Soviet Union. Well, they weren't allowed to have arms, but I think they just, like, guys, don't go home yet. We might need you. <laughs> so what the, the German army did was kind of ingenious. They laid off a lot of their rank and file, like privates, um, and they kept on their NCOs and officers when they could only have 100,000 troops after the Versailles Treaty. So they were focusing on, we'll train our NCOs really well, who are like the squad leaders and platoon leaders, and we'll train our officers really well. And then if we ever have to mobilize again, we can just take up all these untrained conscripts and have these trained sergeants and, and lieutenants and officers train them up really fast. So it's a good way to mobilize and make a giant army really fast, which comes in handy later on. <laughs> yeah, and now Vladimir Lenin's new communist party, was uh, they, were, they were starting to form that, and Churchill didn't like that at all. And he's like, of all the tyrannies in history, the Bolshevik tyranny was the worst. And the Bolsheviks were the considered the Red Army. See, the British were already in parts of former of the former Russian Empire, as they assisted the White Army, the anti-communist forces during the Russian Civil War. 
Churchill told Lloyd George to bring the troops home. Yeah, because at this time, I'm not sure of the British extent, but the U.S. and Japan deployed thousands of troops to northern Russia, uh, Operation Polar Bear. And they were actually fighting with the White Army against the, the Red Army, the, the communists. Yeah, the what? Did they, like, try to, like, militarize these polar bears? <laughs> like, where, Unfortunately, no. <laughs> didn't, didn't the Russians try that or something at one point? The, the Soviets throughout the this period did try to use animals in certain ways. I, I don't know all the projects, but I know one really well. Yeah. To destroy tanks, they trained dogs to have bombs strapped to them. And they oh train them to run God. under tanks, which the you weakest point in a tank is the bottom. Me. And they would explode the dog. So Just killing innocent lives, dude. They were ruthless. Now, Churchill was like, if Russia is to be saved from the communists, as I pray she may be saved, she must be saved by Russians. So, like, you got the White Army, you got the Red Army. They're trying to get involved, but they don't want to start another war right away. So yeah. now they're, uh, they, they pulled the troops out, but they're still supplying the White Army with food and arms. Yeah, and the, uh, the White Army had a lot of other nationalities in it. Like, it was a lot of Finnish, it was uh, Latvians, uh, Lithuanians. Uh, Czechoslovakia had, like, a huge, uh, I think they were called the Czechoslovakian Legion. And the Allies actually, like, bust them through the Trans-Siberian uh, Railway to get them back to fighting. And there was actually a lesser-known Black Army. What? Yeah, it, it's a bunch of anarchists. And oh, my. They made their own country within Ukraine where there was, like, anarchy. Like, the, it's the only anarchist state that's ever li uh, existed in the world. I didn't even see that when I was researching. It's a very small note because they didn't impact things a lot. And they were kind of like a small contingent. And when their state failed, they kind of just it got absorbed into the other movements. Did they absorb into the Red Army or the White Army? Um, the Red Army crushed them, so I don't think they did willingly. If yeah. they did, uh, Trotsky actually crushed them. Uh, Trotsky, red, he led the Red Army. Yeah. He was like uh, Stalin's rival at this time. People were like blaming the Whites' uh, downfall because... They would have. They wanted to restore uh, Russia to like the czars and stuff. Like that was yeah. their agenda. So a lot of people, I mean, they probably could have had more support than they did, but just bringing that back up, people were weren't happy about it. Yeah. So the, after Ger after Russia left World War One, Germany actually signed a treaty with them that they would take over like Ukraine, uh, the Baltic states, and they actually occupied them for a very short time, but they uh, they tried to. And they they put like local German elites in charge, but the uh, the Red Army didn't give a shit at this point at trying to get back the former uh, imperial territories. Mm -hmm. But the White Army did, and I think it's probably because they were more composed of the ethnicities that lived in the periphery of the Western Empire. So we're going from this Russian fiasco to the Irish War of Independence. Churchill had a hand in all of these things, or it led to his. Uh, the ideas that he was forming to try to make these political maneuvers. Yeah. And so there was the fight for the Irish War of Independence, and Churchill gave birth to the Black and Tans. <laughs> and that was a paramilitary group that will help control the Irish Republican Army, the IRA. Yeah, the, uh, there's a lot of groups that were— for Protestants or Northern Ireland, or they were called Unionists because they wanted a union with Great Britain. 
and their symbol is a red right hand and that's on a lot of the banners of northern irish people mm -hmm. and a lot of northern irish people settled the region which in medieval times is called ulster so a lot of these paramilitary groups that were formed to put down the irish republicans they were called ulster defense leagues and stuff like that and they uh even the ira split off into tons of organizations yeah too. i mean everyone branches off as soon as one idea doesn't match up they're like, <laughs> Fuck this, we're getting out of here yeah it's kind of like religion like but the thing about these black and tans they were all world war one veterans so they were so brutal in their tactics that um they caused the irish civilians to seek protection from the ira they're uh, like we we're, we're scared yeah. of the ira they dropped these black and tans in, and now we're like, they're like, we're going back to the IRA. Yeah, this is crazy. I, I joined a, a Facebook group that's uh, Irish fans of The Simpsons, and they that could they, they just make Irish uh, related memes of Simpson stuff, mm -hmm. and uh, they still like talk about the black and tans all the time. Like, they make fun of certain British politicians, and they're like, this guy's a secret tan, or this guy is a tan. So that, the, the terminology is still alive and well. That's what I, I read. Like, if you travel to Ireland now, do mm -hmm. not bring up the black <laughs> and tans and don't, all the war crimes they committed. Don't wear beige. <laughs> and, that, like, Churchill wanted to equip them with mustard gas, too. I don't think they used it, but I think he wanted to. He's like, yeah. Yeah, Winston had— Get them in there. Some people take his quotes out of context where he talks about gases because he, he wanted to use the gases because he thought that it would scare whoever was rioting so much that they would give up really fast and he wouldn't have to kill as many. So he didn't really want to, like, kill a lot of people. He just wanted to scare them with it. Yeah, and I'm not trying to, Showing like— Showing the technology. Yeah, I'm not being an apologist for Churchill. He still wanted to gas people, but he, he <laughs> thought it was more humane somehow because they thought he thought they would give up faster. Well, I mean, you would think after World War One, what people saw, what it actually yeah. did. Um, Everybody they, was so afraid of prolonged wars at this point because they didn't want another repeat of World War One in any situation. Yeah, I don't think that'll ever happen. <laughs> uh, the artist that he was, Winston began to hold exhibits for his paintings, usually consisting of some beautiful scenery. I was looking this stuff up. It's like just little meadows and yeah. shit. Like I saw this movie. Um, it was on HBO. I, it was like a... A, tr a movie about Churchill and like the whole movie is just painting little like <laughs> pictures yeah he, he actually did a lot but I saw something last night that said that he painted and he doted on his kids a lot because of the way his parents were like kind of absentee mm -hmm. so like he did all this shit but then he was also like a pretty decent dad and and uh provider at home too but he still painted like Hitler <laughs> <laughs> sorry I keep bringing that <laughs> up but like and they only did scenery, which is something they both have in common. Exactly. And it's very Didn't creepy. did Hitler draw a dog at one point? But he did love dogs. He, <laughs> and so did Winston. Winston had a ton oh, of dogs, my, too. There's too much similarities, dude. Just saying. Just not facial hair. I don't think there's any pictures of Winston with facial hair. Hell no. <laughs> Early 1921, two deaths hit close to home. His mother passed away, followed by the death of his two-year-old daughter, Marigold. And the story goes that Marigold had a sore throat one night. A governess was watching over her and decided to wait two days before informing anyone about the child's problem. And by then, it was too late. Clementine never blamed the governess for the death, 
but they still fired her and found a new nanny. <laughs> and you're not getting unemployment. <laughs> the Irish War of Independence was still trying to find a solution and eventually became, became the Irish Free State. There was still a Protestant majority that held out to become Northern Ireland, and, the, and uh, they wanted to like remain part of the UK still. The IRA split. The first big issue was uh, one side was pro-treaty and one was anti-treaty. And the treaty that they were fighting over was a treaty that would partition Ireland but make the free state, which is like five-sixths of the island, and in yeah. Northern Ireland, which is one-sixth pretty much. So the IRA started, like, instead of bombing Protestants, they started killing each other over this. Was and it the Anglo-Irish treaty? I didn't I, really I, get yeah. into what that really entailed. But I guess it just made them free. And... Yeah, it, it partitioned it. It gave them their own free state, which is what they want. They initially started just wanting home rule, which meant they stayed in the UK, but they had their own politicians controlling stuff. Yeah. And then they ended up with their own country. So now we're going from Russia. We're going to Ireland <laughs> now. We're going to Iraq, baby. Winston was bent on getting his troops the fuck out of there. Wanting to install an Arab government, he met British representatives in Cairo, agreeing that Faisal would be king of Iraq. It's Faisal. God damn it. <laughs> Faisal would be king of Iraq and his brother Abdullah as king of Transjordan. What is Transjordan, dude? Uh, so Transjordan is everything, uh, fuck, uh, I think east of the Jordan River. Which is the river Jesus yeah, was baptized never, in. I never heard of that before. So the Jordan River cuts it in half, and I think the other side became the state of Jordan, and the other side was like Palestine and like the Golan Heights and the West Bank, stuff like that. But uh, Faisal, he was guided by a, a British woman named Gertrude, and I forget her last name, and I, I, I'm pissed that I can't remember right now. But she was, like, pretty much his advisor. Like, she was his Lawrence of Arabia. What? <laughs> yeah, so it was actually Faisal and this uh, British woman named Gertrude that, like, pretty much built the modern Iraqi state. Wow. Now, like, the Arab Palestines didn't want Jewish migration. In fear, they would take over their lands. Churchill was like, nah, it'll be fine, guys. Just trust me. At this point, the... Uh, the Jews uh, had a policy where they wouldn't allow, they wouldn't do business with Arabs. So they would come to Palestine and like go into their own communities and they wouldn't trade with the Arabs in any way. It was a way to like economically starve them and to like push them out. So they weren't helping the situation <laughs> as Churchill would have seen it. He would be like, why are you guys making, you know, making uh, trouble for me? Yeah, everything was not fine. The Jaffa riots of 1921 took off. Tensions were high at the May Day Parade. A small fist fight broke out in the streets. The Arabs of Jaffa presumed that their fellow Arabs were under attack from the Jewish horde. <laughs> now they were carrying clubs, pistols, swords, stones, and they began to attack Jewish civilians, stores, and homes. Arab women followed behind the slaughter to loot the dead bodies. I didn't think they would well, do something like that. When I read these Arab women were following behind. Well, I mean, that's not a common practice or tradition, but like. That's what I mean. I'm like, this doesn't <laughs> sound right. I'm like, I question where I'm getting my own information. 
I wouldn't be surprised if it happened. Like, it's not out of the realm of possibilities, especially because I don't think Palestine's a particularly rich area at this time. Yeah, if they need what they got to get, then anyone will do it. Yeah, especially in Jaffa, because I don't think that's near Jerusalem, so I don't think they'd be getting that tourism dollar. <laughs> and it didn't end there. It was 1 p.m. A small mob approached a hostel for immigrants run by the Zionist Commission. The residents tried to barricade the gate, but the Arabs broke in. Bombs were going off while gunfire rang through the building. The cops finally showed up to the scene, but there were reports of police officers firing in the direction of the building also, lining Jewish women up for the firing squad and raping anyone that tried to escape. So like, oh, the police are here. <laughs> All right, line up. Nope. <laughs> God damn. There were 47 Jewish dead, 48 Arabs dead, and hundreds wounded. After the shit went down, Churchill thought it was a good time to put temporary restrictions on Jewish migration. At this time, a lot of the Jews that were migrating out of Europe were coming out of Russia. So they probably had, some of them probably had the, the League of Nations passport to move out of Russia or like territories nearby. And a lot of these uh, Russian Jews would go, or Eastern European Jews would go to like America at this time. Yeah. Or they'd go to uh, the Palestine. Uh, a lot of Latvian Jews actually went to like South Africa. <laughs> but like, is does Churchill have any like blame for any of this or well, was he just... He's an extreme imperialist, so he would definitely just go with whatever the colonial authorities want to do. And he'd be for colonizing that area but like he didn't want the like they told him they're like we can't have jewish migration and he's yeah. like well like how did he have the influence to say like no you can't put restrictions on that i think at one point he was in the office of the colonies i forget the exact office name but he well, would have been so able so many titles you can't even fucking think anymore yeah he would have been able to like even if he wasn't in direct office to make action he could have influenced this with his opinion because his even though after Gallipoli his uh, political standing was knocked down a bit, he still had a lot of influence in politics. Yeah. And but th this is kind of just general British policy. So he he was a conservative in the sense that he would go with whatever the policy is of that day. Like he respected the rule of law. He he was more a liberal in the sense like he wanted to liberalize uh, the economy. So yeah, he he may have some blame, but just as much as any other. British politician at this time, in my mind. Well, like, the Prime Minister saw another perfect opportunity to give Winston another raise and a new title, Chair of a Cabinet Committee on Defense Estimates. <laughs> Who the fuck made that title up? Like, where do these titles come from? That's, yeah, that's a really bad... Because I have no idea what the fuck that means. Like, if you have a... The... Well, let me tell you what that means. <laughs> His job was to meet with experts to see how much they could cut out of the budget without putting Britain at risk of national security. And politicians never want to cut budgets. <laughs> well, these guys did. Just to save a little money. This nice, cozy job allowed him to write about his experiences in World War I, vacation in south of France, and be a father to his fifth child, Mary. The same month he bought his new house, Chartwell, in Kent. When does your house have a name? How rich <laughs> does your house have to be before someone can name your house a name? 
like the just the Chartwell. Yeah, I I've, I've thought of that too, and I I've tried to come up with names for like my houses, and I'm like, I don't know, <laughs> like Chartwell sounds fine. Like I thought it was like the town at first. It was like, yeah, he moved to Chartwell. <laughs> oh no, he moved to Kent, but his house was named Chartwell. And it's kind of a pet peeve of mine, but all the new developments around me in like uh, Pennsylvania, and you see it sometimes in West, at, uh, uh, New Jersey too, they give all these estates like vaguely uh, British sounding estate names. Yeah. Like the, the Winston Abbey Oh yeah, townhomes. like these restaurants and stuff that used to be like old houses. Yeah. And they, they name them, that, like they keep the name and they just turn <laughs> it into a restaurant and then it's pretty good. Running for a couple political seats, he suffered consecutive losses until he ran as a conservative again. He was appointed the chancellor of Exeter. Exchequer. What the f- <laughs> Like, he was appointed the chancellor of Exchequer and dealt with finance and economics, even though he had no clue what he was doing. <laughs> yeah, he was notorious for, like, losing huge sums of money, like, yeah, and they gave him, they put him in charge of, that was his only job now, to do that. Yeah. So he was negotiating war repayments, the Bank of England was calling for the UK to return to the gold standard, Churchill didn't like it at first, until he consulted some real economic dudes, then he always supported it. And uh, England was the first country to go back to the gold standard after World War One. When you have the gold standard, anyone that holds your currency can uh, redeem it for gold. Yeah. So countries were afraid that if you had a lot of outstanding bills, like if you had a lot of out, uh, outstanding uh, pounds sterling floating around, like some other country could redeem them all and take a lot of your gold reserves. So when you have money laying around mm-hmm. that they were using, you yeah. could take that to the bank and cash it for gold. Yeah. The reason the United States went off the gold standard in the 70s with Nixon, is uh, we borrowed a lot of money for Vietnam, so a lot of dollars are floating around out there. Jesus and, Christ. And uh, Charles de Gaulle, who was always against, like, American hegemony, he was in charge of France at the time. Yeah. He ordered a bunch of French warships to go over to the United States and demand that they cash in their dollars and give us gold, or give them gold. And then he would take it back to France, and then Nixon was like, nah, we're not on the gold standard anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's worthless. <laughs> yeah, because France went out of NATO at that point, too. Oh, my God. So he, Churchill was doing some good for the people. He got the age for pensions moved from 70 to 60 years old. <laughs> he even let widows collect their money as soon as their husbands died. Promising to cut tax up to 10% for the lower class, he hoped to stimulate the little businesses. I wonder how many uh, how many husbands were off as soon as oh, <laughs> that dude, bill became known. killing husbands <laughs> left and right. Like, I guarantee there had to be plenty of cases where people <laughs> were just killing each other. Now, he said, fuck you to the rich people by taxing petrol oil and the purchase of luxury cars. So isn't that good? Yeah. He's going after the upper class? <laughs> the the problem with... This is my own opinion. Oh, here but, we go with this fucking bullshit. <laughs> the problem with taxing the rich is they can usually get out of it because they have lawyers or they'll change their habits. So at this time, the railroads are probably getting nationalized, so they're cheap. So they're like, well, I'm going to stop buying luxury cars and buying expensive oil. Now I'm just going to take the, the tube. Jesus Christ. And the rich people could afford to do that because they probably didn't have to be at their job at a certain time. So, 
they could afford the time it took to take the tube instead of driving. Now, wait, there's more. If you were a boss of a coal mine, you were usually a pretty rich guy. Churchill called for a binding minimum wage for the workers after the general strike of 1926. When rich people lose money, they do their best to make it trickle down so they can remain in the same profits. I just heard something today on a, a political podcast, uh, Abe Lincoln's Top Hat, and they were talking about <laughs> that's what happens. Like, it's always going to trickle. If there's a problem up top, yeah. it'll trickle down. So it's all, money's always going to trickle down to where we don't have any. Yeah, and the, the government usually gets a percentage of when money's moving, like sales tax when purchases are made and stuff like that. So if money's not moving a lot, they don't get a lot of money in tax revenue. Like the Federal Reserve tracks uh, the velocity of money, like how long it takes a dollar to go through the economy and come back. Yeah. So that's, you know, the government's distorted in their view. They want to see money move a lot. So they want to see it, you know, trickle up and down the economy as many times because they get money for however it moves. It's trickling somewhere. <laughs> it's not trickling to me. I'll tell you that right now. Well, when Winston had a, you know, he probably had prostate problems later on. Then, then he was really trickling. <laughs> <laughs> now, he started traveling. He made his way to Hollywood and had dinner with Charlie Chaplin. The good guy with the mustache. <laughs> yep. And I mean, there's not many good good men with mustaches. Well, he banged underage girls, but I think that was legal then. So That's a myth. <laughs> it was in a movie. Why would Hollywood lie to me? I don't know. <laughs> He went to see the Grand Canyon, Chicago, and New York City. Getting back to London, he found out that India had been given dominion status. Churchill didn't think they were ready for home rule, and this was just a step in that direction. Uh, and dominion status is what Canada got around this time, too. So uh, a dominion, the queen is still the head of the state on paper, but you have like home rule. You have your own politicians voting for stuff for yeah. your own thing and uh canada calls world war one their war of independence because it got them dominion status so india was now just being treated the same way canada had been tra uh, treated for a while <laughs> india was like they wanted to rule themselves but they're gonna have uh, little problems here riots between the hindus and muslims broke out resulting in over a thousand slaughtered and, and winston said See, I told you so. Gandhiism and everything it stands for will have to be grappled with and crushed. Now this is this is fucking gold right here, dude. This is this is amazing. So Churchill was like seeing Gandhi as just a man who was putting on a show. He talked of how it was upsetting, even nauseating, to see a half-naked man walk up his steps. So you could see under his towel. <laughs> oh, I made that last part up, but yeah. like, no, he really did. This is what he thought, but not not the towel thing. But like, this is what he thought about Gandhi. Yeah, at this time, the Muslim uh, part of the Raj, which is India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and I think Burma, the British kind of like shoved in all these groups into one like semi-state called the Raj. And there's a lot of tensions because the British would make deals with certain ethnic groups because they didn't want to station a lot of troops there. So they didn't want to have to, like, put a giant standing army to hold down the Raj. So the British kind of uh, had 
at certain points uh, alliances with the Hindus, certain points they had alliances with the Muslim League, which is the political group that represented all the Muslims in the Raj. And a lot of Sikhs served as uh, as colonial troops and stuff like that. So the British didn't help the, the tension between all the groups. Now, this was a perfect time for Churchill to publish his autobiography, My Early Life. <laughs> and then he was hit by a car in New York City and hospitalized. Hey, I'm walking here. <laughs> I, I just saw that. Like I'm like, I got to write this down. This is crazy. Now, he's on another lecture tour. Winston visited Belgium, the Netherlands, and his last stop, Germany, meeting a man named Ernst Hans von Stiegel. I don't know how you really say that. Uh, that's the closest I would come to. That was pretty good, wasn't it? Yeah. All right. Now, Hans von Stiegel just happened to be the best friend of the one and only Adolf Hitler. <laughs> Ernst was born in Munich but attended Harvard University. He was captivated by Hitler's speech during a Nazi rally. The speech was so good because of Adolf's beautiful and powerful throat construction. I think I know what kind of porn <laughs> this guy's into. That's what Ernst said. He's like... That's exact words. He said throat construction. <laughs> That's what he was admiring during this week. See, Nazism is like pegged a lot to the occult, but I think it's also a lot of fetishism. It's so fucking weird, dude. And uh, this dude even helped finance the publication of Mein Kampf. So kind of a tangent, but since we're talking about Mein Kampf. Uh... We're not talking <laughs> about Mein Kampf. I brought it up in one sentence, and now you want to, like, you think we're talking about it. <laughs> well, I'm talking about All it. All right, go ahead. Uh, Hitler, like, copyrighted uh, Mein Kampf and his own image in Germany, and when he took power, he made every couple get a copy of Mein Kampf, like, after they signed the marriage certificate. That's a good present. So the government had to keep buying his book, and he his personal wealth went through the roof just because like, he's making them like yeah this, you have to pass these out yeah so he, uh, like that was one of the ways he passed it out but like he made the state have to buy and pass it out so he would get a ton of money and he copyrighted his own image so when the state made postage stamps of him in nazi germany yeah. he got a little cut of every postage stamp because it had his image on it that's great man <laughs> churchill's back in england and he had a paratyphoid ulcer hemorrhage now, Damn. guess what that really is? Salmonella. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck is a paratyphoid <laughs> ulcer hemorrhage? And I look it up, and just salmonella comes up. See, doctors just want to sound smart, so they just make <laughs> long-winded I've never shit. even heard that phrase before. So, some people think it was a good time to give Germany back their arms. Most of these people were German. <laughs> Churchill had a bad feeling like if they rearm themselves, they will try to take over the entire world and mass murder millions of people. Nine. What was Winston thinking? A lot of the Germany had like a great arms industry before World War One, and they would sell a lot of their weapons around the world. Like they armed uh, the Chinese nationalists in the Chinese uh, Civil War. And against and also against the Japanese, like you'll see a lot of uh, the special forces for the nationalist forces in, in in China with like German equipment. And after World War One, 
they had to move all their arms industries out of the country. So what they did was they reincorporated a lot of these companies in the Soviet Union, of all places, and in Argentina. Mm. So it was still a German arms company run by Germans, but it was technically an Argentinian company. So that's how they got around it. Jesus Christ. Now, like, <laughs> the, like everyone was... I, I can't believe Churchill was... One of the only ones, I mean, I'm sure there was plenty of people who thought the way he did, where he's like, yeah. we cannot do this. <laughs> like, But he was the most vocal and like he yeah. put his, his you know, uh, political career on the line. Yeah. So news was coming in. German military forces entered Rhineland and broke the Treaty of Versailles. The Rhineland was occupied by the Allies after World War One until troops withdrew in 1930 to show Germany that we could all get along again. Churchill's rivals in England, like that party, they, they fought for a very weak Versailles Treaty against the Germans because they didn't want the Germans to become radicalized because they were getting beat up by everybody. So they actually only wanted the Rhineland occupied for six months by the French. But the French wanted to the French wanted to break it off into its own country that they controlled. The but. French didn't want to do <laughs> shit, dude. We're about to get to that. <laughs> Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So Hitler told his Germans to raise their swastikas high and occupy. But if they were tested, they shouldn't resist and turn back and walk home. Now, I don't know how much of this is true, where Hitler gives the order, all right, you're going to go take <laughs> Rhineland, which we're not supposed to. We're not supposed to occupy that. Yeah. But if somebody comes up to you and tells you not to do this, just turn around. That's called the. Just come back. That's called the no means no policy. But no one <laughs> did anything, and they let Germany occupy. The Rhineland was pressed right against France, but the French army was more worried about Hitler invading their country than doing anything about the breaking of the treaty. The British told France, "We're with you no matter what," and they just sat there. <laughs> So Winston was coming from a place of political weakness, weakness at the time. Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin chose Thomas Inskip for the job of Minister for Coordination of Defense. So Churchill lost his, like, he didn't get a new position. Like, yeah. he was left in the dark. Like, nobody wanted to deal with his shit because he's always coming out, speaking out against the government, challenging what they're doing. And now... He's starting to see, like, there is a big problem about to start because we just let Germany occupy without any resistance. Yeah, and the, the Rhineland's, like, their industrial area, so that's where all of their heavy industry was. Like, that's where all the coal is. So that would have fueled them making armor, the tanks, the ball bearings, everything they need to rearm. And I read that uh, Churchill thought they were, there was a, he was going to get appointed for a, a higher position than that. But, like, the the prime minister didn't even go there. Like, he just kept that, <laughs> and then he had he put up the new, the lower position for re-election or, or to appoint him, and he just passed over him for that. So, like, he was just left there. Now, some were happy that Churchill was just left there, and they, like I said, they didn't want to deal with him, dude. <laughs> He's probably seen as, like, a war hawk at this time, like, just itching for another fight. In his opposition's mind. Yeah. Now, while in the time of re-elections, Churchill was on his best behavior. <laughs> he censored himself in public, 
changed his speeches to appeal to these fucking idiots and stop criticizing the government. So this is like PG-13 Churchill? Yeah, but it didn't work. <laughs> it was He lost anyway. But there was still hope. He still had a way of captivating his own audience, writing a series of articles for the Evening Standard. And the very first story called for actions from the League of Nations. Now he's just writing in newspapers like, oh, <laughs> fuck these guys. We need to do something. We need to do something. And, but I mean, people were still questioning what Churchill was doing. I'm I'm sure he had some like a cult following while he was while he was writing this. Yeah. And but this, I mean, another thing that fucked him up was when King Edward the Eighth intended to marry Wallace Simpson, and Amer and she was an American who had been recently divorced. Now this whole story is in the movie The King's Speech. The King's Speech <laughs> goes through this whole, like, it's off to the side, but you can see what's going on. Churchill pops in for a second. Yeah. Um, and it's all about, like, like if Edward chooses to do this, he has to give up the throne. Everyone was telling him that he would step, they would, like, step away if he went through with it. Like, it, this was so crazy for a king to do this. And Winston Churchill defended the king. Uh, so... I've seen conspiracy theories and stuff on the internet that King Edward VIII was like a German sympathizer. Is that, do you see that at all in the movie? No. I mean. Or they even like talk no, about it? No, I mean the movie, it's literally, he's just about the relationship and okay. the lifestyle. Like, yeah. it kind of just points him to him as, I need, I want to marry this lit girl. I don't, he doesn't give a fuck about anything yeah. else. He left his fat, like, he was the head, he was the king now, but his family was dealing with all this shit still. Yeah, and the, the royal war. family hates controversy in any way. Yeah, so, like, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not, I didn't do too much research on King Henry VIII. I mean, King Edward VIII, but it just seems like he wasn't interested anyway in and what was going on. At least Churchill's like consistent. Cause like he wouldn't want himself to be a hypocrite by saying that he can't marry this divorce woman. Like he's living like a crazy lifestyle where he's spending like a year's salary on champagne. Yeah. But Churchill just wanted him to delay any decision about his abdication. He even told the ministry that they were applying unconstitutional pressure on the king. The ministry actually shouted Churchill out of the goddamn room of a hearing. <laughs> so now, like, I mean, dude, it's not allowed. Like, this law, like, you have to give up the throne if you do this. And Churchill's saying that the ministry's just putting pressure on him. That must have been some great dome. <laughs> <laughs> Churchill must have been getting dome on the side or something. Like, I got to keep this lady around. Oh, he, anything you say. Uh, I love Churchill. And this is what he said. I was myself so smitten in public opinion that it was the almost universal view that my political life was at last ended. He thought he was done. And I always find this shit, like, annoying. Like, what do you do you really care if your politicians are doing hinky stuff on the side or your king? I mean... At that level, dude, I mean, it's just it's just the old way of thinking where it just hasn't come yeah. around yet. Well, we still see a little bit of it today, but, like, you know they're doing it. 
Yeah, but can you? You still can't do that today, right? If you're the king. Well, during the cold you? during the Cold War, they thought like if you're a homosexual or you're like cheating on your wife, and I think that's why it's illegal in the UCMJ, which is like the Universal uh, Code of Military Justice. Um, I think they're in there because a, a agent for the other side can use that leverage against you to disclose secrets. What if Queen Elizabeth bangs a divorced man? <laughs> Is she I don't out? think they'll care at that point, but Nah, I think she's done. It'd be she... a controversy. Like she's also a badass. I though, mean so. it was it was a controversy for what's his name to marry the American woman. Yeah. Just recently. That uh, was a Meghan contra- Markle. Yeah. And that... he's not even in line of secession. Yeah, either. that was a controversy. He's not even gonna be king. Yeah. Well that was stupid. Uh, I think the media hyped that up a lot. Yeah. Now, Churchill was basically in political exile. He still did his best to talk out against Germany, privy to some secret information from disaffected civil servants inside the war ministry and foreign office. These people would be known as the Churchill Group. <laughs> that's, a, that's a pretty good uh, think tank name. Yeah, people love them, dude. Uh now, I mean, this group was only made up of three people by, like, later in the decade. <laughs> there was Duncan Sandys. <laughs> is that a, can- I is that a even, cookie brand? <laughs> I didn't even realize that because I, I was just reading it until I said it out loud. Duncan Sandys <laughs> and Brendan Bracken. And there was Churchill himself in the group. That makes the three. Now, Duncan Sandys was a British politician and his future son-in-law, and the then fucking brown nose. <laughs> <laughs> and then Brendan Bracken was the minister in the British uh, Conservative, founder of the Modern Financial Times. Mm. So he was a modern man. So this is—I mean, you got the crew, dude. And one of <laughs> Churchill's neighbors, Major Desmond Norton, got approval from statesman Ramsay Macdonald to leak information about the German air power. In, in 1934, they gave him complete access to the secret documents. Uh, German air power during this time and, like, later on, they would just focus on, like, close air support. So, like, uh, strafing the enemy lines right in front of the infantry or, like, bombing mach- machine gun pits right in front of the infantry so the infantry could keep going. But the British wanted to focus on, like, strategic bombing and, like, having huge bomber fleets and just having fighters to defend the bombers. So Germany had a totally different mindset, but they kind of rivaled the British in, like, size of the Air Force. Well, Churchill was so pissed off from Neville Chamberlain jerking off Adolf Hitler (laughs) every day, every time they met. Winston wrote just before the Munich Agreement, the country was stuck between war and shame. The Germans moved on from the Rhineland to take the Sudetenland. Former parts of German-speaking Czechoslovakia, Hitler thought these Germans should be reunited with their homeland, so he brought the homeland to them. And uh, the Sudetenland was like one of the most industrialized areas of Czechoslovakia, so like they were also taking their factories, which helped them rearm as well. Now listen to this, dude. uh, Chamberlain flew to Hitler to talk about his (laughs) naughty behavior making an agreement to never advance into someone else's territory without proper permission again, everyone was happy. Problem solved. No war. (laughs) That's all it took. Thank you, Chamberlain. 
I really appreciate your help with uh, getting this deal done. Jimmy and up. then <laughs> Hitler tightened his demands and told the Czechs they would have to evacuate their homes. Chamberlain flew back to another meeting to ask Hitler, why were you, why are you being naughty again? <laughs> and Adolf convinced Neville that it was a good it was good for everyone if he approved these new terms. He went to the Czechs. They refused the terms, obviously, because they don't want to evacuate their home. He went to Britain. They refused. And this was the choice. Like, these dudes could evacuate or submit. Chamberlain told the country he had achieved peace with honor. <laughs> and then Churchill replied with, You were given the choice between war and dishonor. You chose dishonor, and you will have war. That's sick, dude. <laughs> That's sick. Basically, you fucked up. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Chamberlain, what was he? What was he thinking? Was he just a pussy? He was just really scared, and like politicians are scared to do, do anything that's not popular. So, like anything that increased tension with Germany would probably piss off the British public, because a lot of those are World War One veterans, and they don't want to go back over there again. Yeah, but like. Once this happens, you got Germany moving. Mm -hmm. They're occupying whatever they want. I mean, they just decided, like, no one's going to do anything. We yeah. just took the, uh, Rhineland. Now we're taking Sudetenland. They violated, like, every part of the Versailles Treaty because the Versailles Treaty said, like, uh, they couldn't join with Austria, which is another German-speaking country. Yeah. And they just joined with them anyway. The, it's called the Anschluss. Jesus. And then months later... Germany began their invasion of Poland. <laughs> September 3rd, 1939, Britain declared war on Germany. Winston Churchill was promoted to first Lord of Admiralty. Instantly, dude. He's so coming like, back. Dude, I, it, <laughs> how crazy is that? Like, you've been stepped down, political exile, all this shit. Yeah. As soon as they declare war... We need Winston Churchill. I bet he felt good getting back into the boat office. Oh, yeah, dude. <laughs> he loved it. And that. so next week, we are going to be getting into Winston Churchill and World War II and what comes after. And that's it, dude. Yeah. What a story. Winston Churchill <laughs> has so much depth to him that I didn't even yeah. realize. But it's our uh, first four-parter. Yeah, I mean, the, this is our first three-parter, I think. Okay, yeah. So we're going for four, maybe <laughs> five, dude. Maybe I'll do, like, him as a ghost and stuff. His story Churchill's thick. ghost. <laughs> so thank everyone for listening. Uh, please rate and review us on all the shits that we use, <laughs> and it'll really help us out, get us out there. And we're, we're planning on releasing some merch soon, getting some yeah. shirts made. Uh, doing some shout outs. We're going to get all this stuff moving soon. So thank you guys again for listening. You guys are the best. And I got Sean Klein's here. Bye-bye. And he just <laughs> said bye-bye. I don't know if you could hear that. He just said bye-bye. And he just said thank you, everyone. I don't know how to end things. All right. He doesn't. All right. I mean, now you just fucking ruined the ending. All right, guys. Fight the fate. Mike Benamo. Bye. <laughs>